This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, a Star Trek podcast told through the lens of leadership development. And now here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining me today. And thanks, Pat, for the great introduction. Hey, I'm not going to lie. I'm super excited for this episode. Deep Space Nine has quite a few multi-episode arcs sprinkled through it, and this, this one really dives into one of my favorites. The 22nd episode of the fourth season of DS9, For the Cause. Okay, let's start with a little table setting here. The episode is going to focus on the Maquis. Now, we've talked a little bit about the Maquis in our Voyager episodes on Caretaker and the Cloud, but they haven't, they haven't really played a significant role for us yet on this podcast. This episode takes place in the year 2372. For decades prior to this, starting in the late 2340s, the Federation and Cardassians were at war. Mostly, mostly over border disputes. The war lasted until the late 2360s when an armistice was finally signed. While that ended the fighting, it didn't answer the questions, though, around the border. Prior to the war, both the Cardassians and the Federation aggressively colonized planets in, in close proximity to each other on the edges of their borders. Land disputes grew into border disputes, which grew into battles, which led to war. War. War never changes. The questions around the border and ultimately who had rights to which colony were answered in 2370 when the federation Cardassian Treaty was signed and ratified. That treaty was then upheld in the Jankata Accord of 2371. Sounds good, right? Disagreements escalate into violence, but, but, but cooler heads prevail and they land on peace. Well, <laughs> well, not quite. You see, the Federation ended up giving up quite a few worlds to the Cardassians, and that meant the colonists, they had to leave their homes. Some did, of course, but, but others stood up. They took on the Cardassians and tried to take their homes back. The Cardassians considered them nothing more than terrorists, and, and, and they held the Federation responsible for, for most of their actions. Officially, the Federation called them traitors, and they sought them out. In fact, that was, that was Janeway's mission in Caretaker, if you remember. But there were many in the Federation, and even Starfleet, that sympathized with the Maquis. This leads to some incredible storytelling across TNG and DS9, and well, even a little bit into Voyager, although, although I consider the way they handled the Maquis a real missed opportunity. More on that at another time, though. I wanted to set all that context for you because this episode catches us in the middle of all the Maquis activity right from go. And if you didn't have at least some of that background, you would probably find yourself a little lost. Okay, to the episode. We start with Cassidy Yates waking up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. A while ago, Cisco's son, Jake, connected him and Cassidy, and they've been seriously dating for about a year at this point. So, so Cassidy wakes up and tries to get out of bed, but 
Cisco pulls her right back. She's a freighter captain, and she has to get ready for a run. Cisco tries really hard to convince her to stay, stating that he is a Starfleet officer, the paragon of virtue. She resists his wiles, though, and she heads out. Senior staff are meeting for a briefing by Lieutenant Commander Michael Eddington. Yeah, here's here's another one. At, at the beginning of Season 3, Eddington became the chief of Starfleet security on Deep Space Nine. He appears sporadically uh, in the series up to this point. He's a very by-the-book kind of officer whose loyalties lie with Starfleet and not necessarily Cisco. If, if if that makes sense, I'm sure we've I'm sure we've all worked with that person, right? And and if we were smart, we ultimately appreciated working with them. The person that that resists out of the box thinking, who can't imagine not following protocol, and most importantly, will probably be the very first to report you when you're the one that doesn't follow protocol. Now, don't hear this as the person being a tattletale per se. They just Tow the company line, chapter and verse, all the time. All the time. Now sometimes, or maybe, well, all the time, this person can be, can be pretty frustrating. But they actually serve a critical purpose. While there are absolutely times that we, as leaders, need to push the boundaries, stretch the rules, we still need to play within the, the overall rules, the policies, the vision, the values of our organization. The Eddingtons of the world, well, they, they help us stay there. In a way, they're kind of like they're kind of like Jiminy Cricket. Just, you know, not quite as cute and, and frankly a whole lot more annoying. But like he says, you should let your conscience be your guide. So thank you to the Eddington Crickets of the world. Always let your conscience be your guide. Eddington starts the briefing by stating this is highly classified information. This briefing will contain information considered extremely sensitive by Starfleet Command. Please do not share it with anyone who doesn't have a level 7 security rating. The Klingon invasion of Cardassia a while ago caused more damage than has been shared. So the Cardassians have made an urgent request to the Federation for 12 industrial replicators. The Federation granted the request, but Starfleet Intelligence believes the Maquis will try to intercept those replicators. With the focus on defending against the Klingons, the Cardassians have turned a blind eye to Maquis activity, giving them a chance to solidify their presence in the DMZ and the nearby area known as the Badlands. We saw those in Voyager, Caretaker. So, so now, they're, they're a real threat. The replicators will ultimately be transferred through Deep Space Nine, so Cisco orders security to ramp up. After the briefing, Odo and Eddington hold Cisco back. They have intelligence that there's a Maquis smuggler on the base, and they believe it's Cassidy Yates. Odo explains there are discrepancies in her logs that leave gaps in times that allow for rendezvous that align with various Maquis activities. Cisco, though, just isn't hearing it, and he's starting to get upset. So Odo clarifies that these are, these are just suspicions at this point. Nothing more. Cisco plays a powerful leader card here. He listens to Odo, and he agrees. We haven't made any accusations. I said we have suspicions. That's right, you did say that. He then reluctantly agrees that they can watch her more closely, possibly even inspect her ship. Like many great leadership moments in Star Trek, this one happens in the blink of an eye. Cisco's understandably upset and worked up here. 
His significant other is under suspicion of basically being a terrorist, or, or at least aiding them. But even with that, he doesn't stop listening to his team. As he's escalating, Odo very calmly resets reality for him, taking him from believing they're going to arrest and charge her, back to them simply updating him that they have suspicions. He hears this, he calms down, and makes an unbiased decision to allow them to do their jobs. Brilliant. On top of this, Cisco demonstrates a pretty harsh reality for us, not just as leaders, but, but as human beings. Our worst enemy is ourselves. We have met the enemy, and he is us. Cisco's self-talk starts to spin him out of control, weaving a story of worst-case scenarios that, that aren't e they're not even really grounded in reality. Now, he demonstrated the maturity to hear his teammate and to de-escalate, but that doesn't always happen. Let's dive into this a little more in the command code section. Dr. Bashir and Garrick are catching a spring ball game that Kira is playing in. Garrick, Garrick is a Cardassian that owns a tailor shop on the promenade. <laughs> he's one of my favorite characters in all of Star Trek. Complicated, he's deep, very, very well acted by Andrew Robinson. At this point in the series, we know that there is much more to Garrick than being a plain, simple tailor. He was a former operative, you see, for the intelligence arm of Cardassia, the Obsidian Order. That makes him a spy through and through. He's on the outs with the Cardassian government and is all but exiled to Deep Space Nine. He's developed a close relationship with Bashir over the years. Well, as close as a person like Garrick can get to a person. In this scene, they're showing why they're the most dynamic married couple in sitcom history. Did you see the way she gave him the tiniest head fake and then boom, checked him into the wall? Yes, it was quite effective. Awesome back and forth between the two of them. And Garrick and Zial keep looking back and forth at each other, though. The point is to watch the game, not the spectators, especially not that spectator. They just keep coming, don't they? This, uh, this deep into DS9, they've introduced a lot of new characters, a lot of storylines, and, and, and there are more to come. Now, Tora Zial uh, is the half-Bajoran, half-Cardassian daughter of Gold Dukat. If you remember from Emissary, Dukat is the kind of arch-villain from Cardassia who uh, commanded Deep Space Nine when it was under Cardassian control, and, and, and he was the prefect of Bajor while it was occupied by the Cardassians. Well, in that time, he had an affair with a Bajoran woman, and they conceived Zial. She ended up on DS9, that's, that's a whole other episode, and ultimately also isn't welcome on Cardassia, just like Garrick. So they're both at this spring ball game, kind of making eyes at each other, while Bashir, Bashir just wants to watch the game. Garrick wants to talk with her after the game, and Bashir's trying to discourage him. Dukat absolutely despises Garrick, and Bashir sees nothing but trouble if he starts interacting with Zial. That's Gul Dukat's daughter, and I can't think of anyone in the galaxy who hates you more than he does. Besides, Zial is a friend of Kira's, and I wouldn't play around with her if I were you. Sisko, in the meantime, is cooking in his quarters. He's old school and enjoys cooking his own food instead of just replicating it. If Yen can cook, so can you. Jogging. Cassidy and Jake come in and they're talking about some of her trade routes. You know, casual conversation about what she sees when she's out. Cisco keeps sniffing down the path, though. He's trying to figure out if she's making these Maquis runs or not. Don't you make a regular cargo run to a neighboring system? No. Kavaria's out towards the Badlands. I try to stay away from there. You should ask Quark. I bet he knows someone who's been out that way. She plays it super cool. 
after this scene, both Cisco and the viewer, well, me at least, were fairly convinced that, that she's innocent. I say fairly because there's clearly still like at least the hint of doubt on Cisco's face as we transition to the next scene. In an overcrowded turbo lift, Garrick finds himself traveling with Zial. After a few stops, they are the only two left. Introducing Axe Deodorant Body Spray for Men. And we get some of that excellent, really wooden Star Trek acting here. You could always call security. Oh, true. But it would take them a few minutes to arrive, and by then, it might be too late. In their conversation here, they bridge the relationship gap a little bit as Garrick gets off on the promenade. Odo, true to his word, is forcing an inspection of Cassidy's cargo before they can depart. He says they're looking for signs of the Tameklian virus and that this inspection's probably going to take about six hours. Yikes. So Yates does what anybody who's dating the commander of a station would do and pulls the Cisco card and gives him a call. We'll see about that. Cassidy? I'm sorry to bother you, Ben. Normally, I wouldn't do this, but... What is it? It's this health inspection. Luckily, Odo ran the concept by him as he initially, he backs the virus inspection. But she persists, and, and, and he eventually caves. He justifies his way around it, despite objections from Eddington. He lets her head out. However, he does order Worf and the Defiant, along with Eddington, to cloak and follow Yates' ship to observe. Partway into her flight plan, she alters course into the Badlands, and the Defiant stays with her. While this is happening, O'Brien praises the intelligence of the Maquis for, for choosing the Badlands as their hideout. But Worf says, They are terrorists. This prompts a conversation on the bridge of everyone's feelings on the Maquis. Worf thinks they're, they're nothing more than criminals. But O'Brien says, you know, they're just, they're standing up for something they believe in. And he sympathizes with their situation. He even goes as far as to compare their plight with the Bajorans when they were fighting the Cardassians. Eddington says that he doesn't have an opinion. He just does his job. Whatever Starfleet says to do, that's what he'll do. According to him, anything else is an indulgence. While they're talking, it happens. A Maquis raider rendezvous with the Zosa, and Yates beams over cargo. They've caught her, red-handed, but leave it for now and just continue their observations as ordered. Back on the station, Zial drops into Garrick's shop. They continue their, their, their tense conversation. She tells him that she has a holosuite program of a Cardassian sauna and invites Garrick to join her in it. As the only Cardassians on the station, they're the only ones that could enjoy the hot temperatures. He agrees, and they make it a date. Jake orders a Ractigino for breakfast. That's, uh, that's Klingon coffee. Me and Vincent would have been satisfied with some freeze-dried taster's choice, right? He says Cassidy turned him on to it. Deep Space Nine has a lot of really great father-son moments in it, and, and this is definitely one of them. I guess you're not used to sleeping alone anymore. <laughs> oh, what I mean is, you miss her companionship. <laughs> you miss talking. <laughs> For Cisco, it, it, this adds to the tension. Uh, you know, knowing that Cassidy is bonded with Jake, really, as, as a part of his family. And now, he knows that she's, <laughs> she's aiding an enemy of the Federation. So he does a he does a beautiful thing here. He affirms his relationship with Jake. This is important. You and I. Things change. But not 
this. And then he heads to his office. The senior staff are debriefing the cargo exchange. O'Brien says transporter signals suggest the cargo was food and medicine. Dax pauses, tries to talk with Cisco, but, but he's just not having it. Now, I've said it before, and I am positive I'll say it again. But leadership is often a lonely place. It's really so counterintuitive. Like you're surrounded by teams and, and your job is to work with people. But, but so often you're, you're alone. And that loneliness, that's, that's the weight of decision making. Cisco knows what decision he's going to have to make when Cassidy returns to the station. But, but it's breaking his heart. As leaders, we, we find ourselves in these situations as well. I mean, it's probably not as exciting as someone smuggling cargo to a named terrorist organization, but, but still, because we work with people, we will have to make heartbreaking calls. In the United States, we have the Family Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, or FIMLA. This is limited, protected, usually unpaid time that employees can take for serious health conditions. It amounts to 480 hours or, or, or three months of this time. But you and I both know there are serious health conditions that last longer than that. You know, you know what keeps me up at night? Knowing that tomorrow I'll have to tell someone that is seriously ill or is struggling to recover from surgery or is caring for a loved one that that after that time they're they're going to they're going to have to either come back to work or quit their job. I mean, just feels it feels inhumane, but that's the job. So to help support myself through those decisions, I lean on colleagues and friends, the people I trust and that I know I can depend on. In this scene, Dax knows the score. She knows that best case, Cisco is going to have to arrest his partner. And she knows it's killing him. She pauses here to offer her friendship and her support. But Cisco refuses it. We'll, we'll talk about this more later. Cassidy returns and goes straight to Cisco's quarters. She's playing it off as if everything was normal. She has no reason not to. He's really uncomfortable. He keeps asking about her routes. Jake comes in. He invites him to a baseball game in the hollow suite, but but Cisco says that says he has to get back to work. But I'm only here for a few hours. Duty calls. I'll see you when you get back. He immediately meets with Eddington and Odo and informs them that she's planning on going out on another cargo run tonight. They say that they're going to go after her, and uh, he he has no choice but to agree with them. See the girl over there? When she leaves, put a tail on her. After that, Eddington asks to meet with him in private. He asks to personally supervise the transfer of the replicators in the morning. Sir, if the Maquis put up a fight, there's also might get caught in the crossfire. If that happens, I can't guarantee the safety of Cassidy Yates. And to be blunt, I don't want that responsibility. I can't say I blame you. He agrees, and, and Cisco, because Eddington won't be on the Defiant, says he'll be there. He'll take command of the ship as it tails the Zosa. He intercepts Cassidy before she gets on her ship. He says, he says they should just Drop everything right now. Go straight to Ryza. Spend some time together. What about your station? I have a great crew. They can handle things around here for a few days. He wants so badly to stop her from making this run. But, but she's just not hearing it. She does say that she'll, she'll meet him on Ryza after the run. So then he just backs off. He says it was just a crazy idea. Wishes her a good trip. He stares at her with a palpable feeling of loss as she boards her ship. 
in the Badlands, and they end up in the exact same place they were before. They sit in a holding pattern for quite some time. The Zosa and the Defiant just waiting. Garrick's in his shop, and Kira storms in and threatens him. She says, Now that girl is here under my protection, and I swear, if you do anything to hurt her, I will make you regret it. Is that clear? It's, it, it's actually pretty ironic. He is actually terrified that Zial is the threat to him. Huh. Young love in the time of espionage and assassinations. Back in the Badlands, the Zosa is still waiting. It's been five hours now. Odo is, is freaking out. He's expecting the worst. I think she's already made her delivery. And you were the cargo. Sisko ultimately agrees with the paranoia, and so they beam over to the ship. He confronts Cassidy. He says that he knows she's a smuggler and asks what her mission is. She says that she's just here to deliver medical supplies. He, he keeps pushing and she, she says that she couldn't imagine an attack on the Defiant or Deep Space Nine. That's when Cisco does the math. Everything's been building to this. They needed to draw me away from the station. Why? If they aren't planning an attack, what other reason could there be? What could be happening on the station he realizes there's there's not going to be an attack but the replicators that are transferring through the station right now are the target so they head back maximum warp they find that ds9 is on communications blackout odo is still furious and freaking out you see they left the zosa and yates where they were cisco didn't make any arrests. You realize we'll probably never see the Zosa or Captain Yates again? On the station, Eddington is briefing the Starfleet security team. As they leave, he asks Kira to join him. You wanted to see me? Yes, Major. I'm afraid I need to take command of the station for the next few hours. And then he blasts her with a phaser. He heads to the Vulcan freighter that's transporting the replicators. He puts a Lieutenant Reese in charge as he removes his comm badge and boards the freighter. We get a quick glimpse of the freighter docked at the station and the IDIC, or IDIC, symbol in the airlock signifying and verifying that it's a Vulcan vessel. We haven't really had an opportunity to discuss the IDIC symbol yet, so we will, we will hear in a little bit. It really, it ultimately symbolizes so much of what Star Trek represents and what we can learn from it. The Defiant finally returns to Deep Space Nine, and Eddington, along with the replicators, are long gone. Eddington hails Cisco, though, and so he takes that in his office. Open your eyes, Captain. Why is the Federation so obsessed with the Maquis? We've never harmed you, and yet we're constantly arrested and charged with terrorism. Starships chase us through the Badlands, and our supporters are harassed and ridiculed. Why? Because we've left the Federation, and that's the one thing you can't accept. Nobody leaves paradise. Everyone should want to be in the Federation. Hell, you even want the Cardassians to join. You're only sending them replicators because one day they can take their rightful place on the Federation Council. You know, in some ways, you're even worse than the Borg. At least they tell you about their plans for assimilation. You're more insidious. You assimilate people. And they don't even know it. Oh, this is such a pivotal moment in all of Star Trek. Eddington is Maquis, and he asks Starfleet to just leave them alone. Then he says it. No one leaves Paradise. No one leaves the Federation. 
Cisco responds by saying, And if it takes me the rest of my life, I will see you standing before a court-martial that'll break you and send you to a penal colony where you will spend the rest of your days growing old and wondering whether a ship full of replicators was really worth it. Wow. Zeal and Garrick have their date. They find they have a lot more in common than they thought. As the only Cardassians on the station and being all but exiled from their home, they bond and find comfort in their shared culture and their shared situation. Yates returns to Deep Space Nine alone. She left her crew at a Maquis base so she would be the only one to face punishment. This shows so much courage, so much integrity. Not only is she taking accountability for what she did, but she's protecting her crew as well. <laughs> this is fantastic. They embrace and then Cisco calls security to arrest her. He says he'll be here, waiting for her to return. And the episode ends with Cisco alone, as Cassidy is let out by security. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Tulusma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Well, I love this episode. I mean, I think I've said before that as part of my process, I watch each episode twice. Once just to kind of re-familiarize myself with it, and a second time uh, to take notes and really dive in. Well, through confession time, I watched this one three times. The Garrick and Zial story was, well, not, not super great, but it, but it made sense. DS9 runs some complex story arcs through it, many times over multiple seasons. Not only is the Zeal Garrick arc one of those, but Garrick as a whole certainly is too. We often see the Cardassians portrayed as cold, calculating, always seeming to have it together. Here we get to see some of the fear and the doubts that really drive them. We also see the need for community. As the only Cardassians on the station, even when they're surrounded by people, they likely still feel alone. They have no one to share in their culture and their rites and rituals that are important to them. I mean, here they bonded and found comfort just hanging out in a room that was hotter than most people on the station would like it. There is real comfort, real power in people with similar backgrounds, heritages and experiences, connecting and enjoying those connections. And this brings up the opportunity to talk about IDIC, IDIC, infinite diversity in infinite combination. Infinite diversity from infinite combinations. Thank whatever created us, we are different, each of us and everything around us. To the end of time, if it ever does end, no combination will ever come up quite the same. I am an alien, and so are you, and yet, and this is the loveliest thing of all. Somehow we're also part of each other and part of everything that is. This embodies Vulcan philosophy and calls out the endless variables across the universe. As a Star Trek fan, 
It reminds us that people are people and every single one is amazing in infinite ways and infinite combinations. This is a theme we will discuss many, many more times on the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Deep Space Nine absolutely excels at relationships. Of all the series, in my opinion, it tells its stories on the backs of often complex and interwoven relationships. Disco's family is one of those. We saw an emissary, the tragic loss he and Jake suffered when his wife, Jennifer, died. We've seen Jake grow to near adulthood at the sight of his dad. And we will see, and saw some of it here, the, the, the addition of Cassidy Yates and how well she complements them as individuals and the family as a whole. The scene where Jake was giving Cisco a hard time and Cisco's reaction was fantastic. It really reminded me of my household growing up and how it was safe for us to poke a little friendly fun at each other, just like, just like Jake does here. The great job the show has done with his family really adds to the punch of the moment that he has to have Cassidy arrested. This is powerful stuff. And speaking of powerful stuff, wow. Star Trek talking, talking trash about itself. This is powerful stuff, and it really steers so many of the themes of Deep Space Nine from here forward. It's not a normal thing for me to include a full-length clip on the podcast like I did with Eddington's monologue, but I, but I really felt it. I, I needed to include it. I mean, there's no way I could say it better than he did. You know, and and maybe maybe the Federation isn't a paradise. Gene Roddenberry pictured the future as this idyllic utopia. Now, a lot has been written on the concept of a utopia and its analog, a dystopia. You can range from Plato to Ayn Rand and, and, and anywhere in between. But in this declaration that Eddington makes, Deep Space Nine will start to weigh that difference, that balance between utopia and dystopia. I think Gene Roddenberry's vision is commendable and amazing. I mean, that's why I watch Star Trek, right? But I also think with our societal and organizational maturity, we, we can't quite embrace that vision yet. We can't, we can't really see it as a potential reality, especially on the medium of television that exists almost exclusively to tell stories through conflict. In my opinion, with this declaration, Deep Space Nine is, is saying that the Federation is great. Hey, it, it, it might even be the best thing going, but it is absolutely not the end game. It, it, it's still far from perfect. And I think we see this validated in, in more modern Star Trek. As I record this episode, we've seen the first season of Picard and are eagerly awaiting news on the second season. But the Federation we see there is one that has certainly veered away from paradise. And of course, the third season of Discovery shows a very different Federation than what we've all come to know. Now, I want to be clear that this is not a bad thing. The Federation isn't bad and evil because it's not paradise. In fact, <laughs> It's a very real thing, right? This, this is reality. And we, as a society, have the opportunity to learn from this fictional representation of what was intended to, to be, well, sort of a utopia. And maybe, just maybe, we can move closer to a point where we can envision paradise and embrace utopian ideals. Maybe. What a great episode. This episode is one of the many reasons DS9 is my favorite Star Trek. Command codes verified. We have a lot to break down here. Early in the episode, Cisco is kind of freaking out. 
Odo and Eddington have just told him they suspect Cassidy of aiding the Maquis. He starts getting really worked up, starts spiraling quickly. As I said earlier, he catches himself, listens to Odo, and calms down. But this this isn't always what happens. We all have this little person inside of us that has the incredible ability to convince us of most anything. Even the most ridiculous things that we know aren't even close to the truth. I like to call this person self-talk. Oh, self-talk. My familiar and old friend and my deep, deep arch nemesis. The control you have over me is terrifying. This silent yet overpowering voice in each of us can take nothing and turn it into anything. You see, we humans like complete stories. So when we get just partial information, that tiny voice actively starts filling in the blanks. In Cisco's case, it started saying things to him like, they think Cassidy's a terrorist. They probably think you know about it. Next, they'll probably come after you too. So he freaks out. It's not until Odo reassures him that they're just informing him of their suspicions and that, that they're really just trying to be transparent with him that he calms down. See, you see, before that, he was filling in the blanks of the story himself. Situations like this come up all the time in the workplace, daily, multiple times a day, really. Staff are on calls, in meetings, pulling quotes together, doing data entry, you know, working. In the meantime, you've been in closed door meetings all day and haven't responded to that email that someone sent you just before lunch. What they don't know is that those closed door meetings were performance feedback sessions that you set up at the request of a couple staff that are working to improve. You're helping develop them into the professionals that they want to be. But to that person that reached out oh, three hours ago and you haven't had the chance to respond to, well, their tiny voice has been working hard. You see, that voice tells them, they don't care about you. They don't care about your ideas. In fact, they're probably in there with HR, figuring out how to fire you. Yes, yes. You know, they're going to fire you because of that time. Yes, three weeks ago, remember? You kept hitting the wrong button. You couldn't even share your screen. Yeah, you think? Right. I couldn't share my screen. Oh my gosh, they're totally, totally going to fire me. So then you finish your meetings. You're feeling like you've made a positive impact. You open your emails and see one from one of your staff from a few hours ago asking your opinion on a presentation they put together. So you IM them. You want to check and see if they want to get on a call. You can go through it. I mean, after all, today is all about doing awesome stuff for your team. What you don't know is the second you IM'd the person and asked if they had a second to get on a call, their heart leapt into their throat. They, they, threw, they threw up all over the place. This is it, they think. Sounds ridiculous, right? I wish it was. But this is an exact thing that actually happened to me just a few weeks ago. The staff person that had emailed me to check out their presentation is a top performer, and I talk to them regularly. I would never have assumed that they would have these thoughts, that their self-talk would take them down this path. Luckily, we have a good relationship, and about halfway through their presentation walkthrough, they laughed at themselves. They told me the whole thing. My I am, my I am terrified them, and all because of a story they told themselves 
completely made up by themselves. On a on a larger level, think about those decisions you may see as routine or even uninteresting. Budget build time or prepping for strategic planning sessions. Like it's not uncommon for me to have budget review on my calendar. And I keep that calendar viewable to all staff because I believe in transparency, honesty, and accountability. But if revenues are down or if there are rumors out and about and someone sees budget review, it's not an extreme leap thanks to our good old pal self-talk, for them to start thinking layoffs or, or pay cuts or, or who knows what else. How do you deal with self-talk? I, I guess that depends on if we're talking about your self-talk or other people's. We honestly, I mean, we don't have control over others' self-talk or others at all. In fact, I'd say, I'd say we have zero control over them. What we do control is the environment. To counter the self-talk of your teams, the, 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 the storytelling and the filling in of blanks, create and foster an environment where people feel safe asking questions, where, where you're open about how you spend your time and you're open to people asking you about it. Hey Jeff, saw a meeting with payroll and HR on your calendar. <laughs> Anything we should be worried about? Yes, there's a lot to be worried about. I'm totally going to fire you. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That um, that that should that should pretty much never be the way that you answer any question. <laughs> Instead, hey, nothing to worry about. I needed some help with updates in Workday, so so I called in the experts. Or in the, those cases where you aren't at liberty to share more, you could try. Hey, as you know, we're in the middle of collective bargaining right now, so I really can't say anything. What I can tell you, though, is any actions from bargaining will be communicated to you from, from both labor and management. You know, share as much as you can. Honestly, just put yourself in their place as much as possible. Try to understand that they're asking you because they care. And hopefully because you've created an environment where it's safe for them to ask these questions. And when you can't say everything, tell them you can't say everything. Do you, do you know why people don't trust politicians? Well, I mean, other than the constant lying, corruption, and you know, general failure to perform the most basic functions of their jobs. It's because they, they never actually answer a question. When someone doesn't provide an answer, it causes you to lose trust in them. And, and that, <laughs> that gives your self-talk an endless supply of material to work with. So what about your own self-talk? That little voice is hard at work in you too. Just being a leader doesn't give you some kind of special immunity. But learning to master your self-talk will absolutely make you a better leader. I'll try and break it down. Make it simple, right? Step one. Acknowledge that self-talk is alive and well within you. Any thoughts to the contrary, <laughs> any thoughts to the contrary is literally self-talk telling you they don't exist. Yeah, chew on that one for a little while. Step two, hear your self-talk. It's telling you something whether you're asking it to or not. And step three, fact check and redirect. Let's use the Cisco example here. Self-talk is going wild for him. Cassidy's a terrorist. He's an accessory. They'll probably be after Jake before we know it. Cisco, Cisco needs to hear his self-talk going there, but he needs to pause. Yeah, pause. What a powerful tool. Like, just in general, just pause for a moment. 
slow that momentum, and then fact check it. Huh, did anyone actually say Cassidy is a terrorist? No, no. He said they suspect her of running cargo to them. Hmm. Then you redirect. In this case, I would imagine Cisco would start asking questions about her cargo runs, the flight plans, cargo manifests, logs, all that kind of stuff. By acknowledging the self-talk, hearing it, then pausing to do a reality check and redirect is real magic. Okay, maybe, maybe not magic, but it works like magic. It also works like any other habit. It gets better with repetition. The more you do this, the more natural it will become for you. But I want to be, I want to be completely transparent here and, and, and fully honest. Self-talk never goes away. It's, it's a part of you. It's also a part of your team, part of your family, part of your organization, the part of your community. Well, it's part of everything and it will always need to be managed. There was a moment after they had confirmed Yates was smuggling cargo to the Maquis when Dax paused to offer support to Cisco, We talked then about leadership often being a lonely position and the need for support from friends and colleagues. I wanted to touch on this again here because as a leader, you, you will be faced with heart-wrenching and impossible decisions. In fact, that's one of the primary justifiable reasons leadership positions tend to pay more or have more perks. We find ourselves sacrificing, I don't know, wellness and maybe even mental health for for compensation. I've been in leadership for a long time now. There are decisions, gosh, there are decisions I made back back in 2003 that sometimes still wake me up in the middle of the night. There was a time a long time ago when I was working as a supervisor on the late shift for a, for a data entry shop. It was, um, it was not a fun place to work. On Mondays, we'd onboard 20 new staff, and on Friday, we'd fire 20. It was an endless and brutal cycle. There was no interest in development, no interest in investment in people. You either met your numbers or you didn't, period. No negotiation, no gray area, one less than expected, one more error than tolerated, and Jeff got to hand you your final paycheck Friday evening. I'd come into the office around 2.30, get the list of people I was dismissing that day, and then wait for admin to deliver the checks to me. Then I'd meet with them individually to let them go. The good thing was that we were more clear than Pepsi in 1993. It was rarely a surprise to people, but that doesn't make it any easier, you know, for them to hear or any easier for me to have to tell them. I tell this story because that, that period of my career was, was dark. That was a very, that was a very difficult time for me. The leadership and management styles of this organization were, were totally contrary to mine, but I hadn't matured to a point to have the courage to walk away and find another opportunity. Instead, I stuck it out for, well, for too long. Long story short, my time there made a positive impact for a number of people, but it, but it helped steer much of my career. I've come to appreciate it as one of my greatest and most beneficial failures. But like I was saying, I, I, I tell this story because I had a Dax there. Well, not a multi-generational symbiotic parasite, but, uh, but a close friend that I trusted. When my Dax offered her support, I was not a Cisco. I accepted it. She listened to me. She heard my struggles with what I was having to do. She offered advice and some guidance, but more than anything, 
She was just there. It really helped me through that time and helped position me to learn from those experiences and improve myself as a result. Remember the Deep Space Nine episode we did a while ago, Meridian? In fact, that was the last DS9 episode we did. Well, Dax, in that episode, Dax lost an opportunity to spend a lifetime with someone that she very much cared for. Cisco offered his support to her. Like my colleague, he was simply there, simply available for her. It helped her through a very difficult time. So don't be a Cisco. If someone offers you support, guidance, a shoulder to cry on, take it. We're people first. We, we need those things. And now, and now for the real hero of this episode, one of the most selfless and shining examples of leadership that we have seen so far in Star Trek. That's right. I'm talking about Cassidy Yates. What? You ask? But Jeff, she was arrested. She's with the bad guys. Yeah, none of that matters at all. And in one single act, she showed exactly what it is to lead. In the final scene, Cisco is waiting at the airlock for her. She steps through alone. Alone. Her crew. Her, her mission. They, they all failed. They were caught red-handed twice. When they were caught, she freely, readily admitted the truth. Yeah, that's a that's a super amazing leadership thing too. And, and Cassidy Yates is absolutely nailing it here. Immediate accountability. No games, just honesty. And then she even helps problem solve the more immediate crisis of the replicators and the potential attack on the station. But in his response to protect the station, Cisco left Cassidy and her crew unsupervised on the Zosa. They could have just warped off and never have been seen again. But in a show of accountability, maturity, and absolute leadership, she returned to the station to accept her consequences. And again, she did it alone. She left her crew in a place they would be safe. And she, as the captain, the leader, took full responsibility. Just you? I dropped my crew off at a Maquis base. I had to come back, but I didn't see any reason to drag them here just to face a prison sentence. You didn't have to come back either. Yes, I did. And I think we both know that's why you left us alone out there. To see if I would. I'm not going to stand here and apologize for what I did. You had your duty. I had mine. I still have my duty. I know. And I know I'll probably go to prison. Perfection. Ask yourself this question. When you and your team have failed, who took the heat? Did your superiors know the name of everyone that had a hand in the failure? Or was it you and you alone that they knew failed? I guess, I guess the lesson here, don't be a Cisco, be a Yates. What are your thoughts on this episode? We had a lot to talk about. There was the incredible stuff with the Maquis. There was the declaration that the Federation is not a utopia. And then of course, these valuable leadership lessons that we talked about. Hit me up. I want to know how you felt about this. I'm on all of the social media at Jeff T. Aiken. That's Jeff T as in trader, A-K-I-N. And if you would, if you have a 
all enjoyed the Starfleet Leadership Academy. If you've learned anything from it, please tell a friend, tell a colleague about it. I'd really appreciate it. Now, let's check it out and see what we're going to be watching next time. Working. We're going back to the original series and an absolute classic episode of Star Trek from the first season, 26th episode, The Devil in the Dark. Some great themes in this one that I'm really looking forward to analyzing. So until then, Ex Astra Scientia. If you're a working professional, wondering what's next for your career, you've come to the right place. Whether you're looking for a promotion, growth, or a potential career transition, look no further. With over 30 years working in a variety of industries, I share my insider knowledge with those ready to get ahead on Career Advancement with Craig Ansell. Tune in to get your strategies for success. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid. Electric acid.